Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. What really helps after something like this is to sort of figure out something that's your passion and then maybe figure out how to do it with some other people. What happens when we lose our spouse after decades of being together? What is caregiver guilt and how do you recover from that? Why would someone decide to go from being a lawyer to becoming a creative writer? Hello and welcome to Bereaved But Still Me. Our purpose is to empower members of our community. I am Michael Lieben and the father of three children, Idan, Sapir, and Liel. Liel, my youngest daughter, was born with a heart defect and later she developed autism and epilepsy. Losing her at 15 is what has brought me here to be the host of this program. Our guest today is Debbie Weiss. Debbie is a writer, a former lawyer, and a widow. Her mother passed away when she was 42, and then her husband passed away in his 40s. Debbie and her husband were together for 32 years. They had been high school sweethearts. He was a huge part of her life, and he wanted to protect her from his cancer diagnosis. Sadly, his choices meant that Debbie became his caretaker while not really understanding the progression of his disease. Debbie has written a book to help others who have experienced a devastating loss. Her book, available as is, is a midlife widow's search for love. Today's show is Debbie Weiss, Widowhood, Remorse, and Wisdom. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us on Bereaved But Still Me. Thank you for having me, Michael. In addition to the loss of your husband, you experienced another significant loss, the loss of your mother. Can you share with us how old you were when you lost your mother and George and what those losses looked like? When I was 10, um, I was living in a lovely, pretty rustic suburban town in uh, Northern California. And uh, my dad one day said, we're taking my mom to the hospital. She developed an illness, got worse in the hospital. And uh, two months later, she died four days before my 10th birthday. This caused me to be a very cautious person, keeping a really good eye on my dad, because, you know, a parent, as I learned, could vanish at any time. So I uh, lived pretty cautiously. I uh, went to uh, UC Davis, a law school pretty near me, and married my high school sweetheart, George. We were together for 32 years. And then uh, one day in, uh, I believe, November of 2009, he came home from work, said he was going to the hospital, and he was diagnosed with uh, metastasized male breast cancer. He died a few years later uh, in April of 2013. And I was uh, almost 50, and we'd had 32 years together. When you lost your mother, how did that affect your feelings toward your father? I mean, were you suddenly walking on eggshells? How did that affect the rest of your relationship with your father? It was hard because this was 1973, and it was a time when men weren't really involved with running a household or parenting. My dad's actually a nuclear physicist. He's retired and still with us at 92 and a half. Uh, and at the time, you know, he's his his job was his work. He went he went mm-hmm. to uh, work and did physics, and my mom took care of me and the house and the cat. 
So it was pretty, I think, surprising for him to suddenly inherit all of that. And uh, naturally, he was a little on edge, and so was I. And it was also a time when if children appeared to be functioning, the prevailing wisdom was not to talk to them about the loss. So I didn't get any counseling. Nobody at school mentioned it. All I kind of heard was, gee, you know, I wasn't doing so well in my math homework and still hated PE. And I really didn't understand why all this was being swept under the rug because I was really very unhappy as it, when that happened, obviously. Did that in any way prep you for future loss in particular, George? Not really. Probably due to magical thinking in any way, I figured I'd sort of had this big loss in my life. I'd already lost the person I loved the most. It certainly shouldn't be happening again. So no, this was quite a surprise, especially since I'd lived my life so cautiously. You know, there we were in the suburbs. Right. He was being an engineer. I was being a lawyer. It's not like we were uh, doing anything particularly risky. So I sort of right. figured the evil fates would have had the decency to leave me alone. The reason I ask is because he died far too young, and that was very distressing to see him decline without including you in his health decisions. And it sounds to me that's a lot what what happened with your mom, that one day they just said, we're going to the hospital. And I would imagine that maybe there's a pre-story to that you might not even have been aware of. So it seems that some of George's decisions may have something to do with that and the way you lost your mother. Is there a connection there? Very much so. Very much so. George really wanted to protect me. When we moved in together, George and I, we lived about 10 minutes from where I live with my father. So we went to the same hospital for his chemo and other treatment uh, where my mother had died. So he really wanted to protect me. He knew that would trigger her loss, which I'd probably never dealt with particularly much. That wasn't really the style in 1973. So he kind of kept me out of his decisions. And eventually, I think that urge to protect turned into a kind of denial. So it was very odd being excluded, especially because at that point, I was almost 50. I was a lawyer. I I was pretty competent. And I I wanted to be involved. So it seems that you became George's caretaker without a lot of prep. You didn't really expect this and you sort of backed into it. What are some of the feelings that you had there? Did you feel guilt or remorse or were you just trying to learn everything overnight? Well, at first I was kind of shocked. It really got bad. He went into the hospital with pneumonia. And at that point I started to really see how badly he was doing because he hadn't told me and he never recovered after that. You know, he came home with oxygen tanks and all kinds of medical apparatus that I didn't know how to use. And for some reason, the hospital probably understandably thought that I knew was more involved. So I sort of had all these things to do and and some other care for him. And since he was in denial, he refused outside care. So I was really worried that I was doing things wrong and making things worse. And he was refusing outside care. He wasn't letting me use outside resources. So I got very angry. And that left me with a lot of guilt. When you said it left you with a lot of guilt, were there those days when maybe you just shouted a little too loud or just did? I mean, what what is it that triggers guilt? I know it triggers guilt for me in the way that I would care for my daughter and sometimes mistakes were made and and there was anger all around. And then sometimes everything was great. So it's a moment that sort of triggers guilt. I have a feeling I know of myself personally. I hate to admit this, but I started to yell at him. Not Mm -hmm. all the time, of course, but occasionally. Mm -hmm. The worst episode was having his parents over for Christmas and he demanded that we sort of stage things. We hid his walker. He put a cap on over his bald head so his parents didn't know all his hair was gone. And I had to play along with this. I didn't know what to do. 
So I really got angry that he wasn't allowing his parents into this situation in part because I could have used some help and Mm -hmm. they wanted to help when they found out they really wanted to help. And also because it wasn't fair to them not to spend some time with them and let them into the loop. And then all the care, I was exhausted and I was so stressed. I got hives. So then Mm -hmm. I was on prednisone, which at least turned me into kind of an ogre. It was like being just (laughs) super amped up all the time. And so that (laughs) didn't help, but I had to keep functioning, right? I couldn't spend all my time itching or trying to figure out what was going on. And modern medicine, you know, brilliantly like, well, we don't know what's wrong. Maybe it's menopausal. And it's like, well, my husband's over there dying in the next room. Do you think? Yeah, that could have something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing. So it was really a mess. And I I did yell a few times. And it's something I still grapple with, those memories and wishing I'd done a better job. I think you're right. I think a lot of those memories don't ever really go away. I'm still hoping that some of mine will dissipate. You've got good days, you've got better days, but that's not really about you. I mean, it's about the situation that you're thrust into that nobody asked for. That's true, and that nobody was prepared for. I mean, nobody's prepared for this stuff. It would have been great in retrospect handling it differently. And I tried, you know, sometimes to say, okay, we need to do this. We need to prepare that. And, you know, some things he was okay with. We did things like get financial documents some wills and trust stuff in order, but somehow the basic stuff, like let's talk about this. How do we prepare for this? Let's be kinder to each other. Those kinds of things didn't really come up. He was kind of a workaholic. So when this was happening, he lost himself in his work and he was sometimes very hard to approach. You are listening to Bereaved But Still Me. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at bereavedbutstillme.com. That's michael at bereavedbutstillme.com. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You became a lawyer when you were very young, but before George passed away, you started your MFA in creative writing, so already your mind was thinking, Albert, why did you make such a dramatic change in careers from lawyer to creative writer? That's pretty steep. I was taking a weekly writing class in creative writing when George was diagnosed and I dropped that and I wasn't taking it very seriously. You know, I was just putting in a few little stories about growing up with my dad, which actually turned out quite well. I didn't get an MFA until 2018, which was some time after George had passed. When you talk about creative writing, I know that my father was a lawyer and people would ask him, what do you need to do to be a lawyer? And he used to say, stop this pre-law stuff. It's garbage. What you really need to do is study English. You need to write and you need to read and you need to write and write and write and write and write. So do you think that was maybe something that helped push you along was actually the lawyer part of you was saying, I need to write that it expands me in some way? When I was a lawyer, my specialty or whatever was insurance coverage. And that actually involved a lot of writing briefs and things. So mm-hmm. I always enjoyed the writing process. I didn't particularly love, after a while, writing about insurance policies. That's about as exciting as it sounds. (laughs) But uh, I always did love writing and editing. So that's always been there. It was just something I kind of abandoned uh, after I finished college. I was an English major. And I got to enjoy that for four years because I knew I was going to law school, but I never thought English would be employable. So my plan was always to go to law school and, and do something that hopefully I could 
get a job from when I graduated. If my father were here, he would hug you. That is exactly what he told people. And you did exactly the right thing. <laughs> and so imagine that from heaven, my father, who's just about to turn 100, is now giving you a little a little hug that you deserve for that. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. We were talking about creative writing and losing George roughly around the same time. Do you think that had a, a role to play in your own mental health while you were going through all of that? Creative writing really saved me in two ways. One was that it was an outlet for my writing. At the beginning, I wasn't a very good writer or an accomplished writer, and my thoughts were pretty fragmented. I had widow's widow brain, which I think fellow widows, widowed people would understand. But it was a way to write things and, and put these down and, and get them out of my head and be able to look at things a little more, well, a little more perspective. Mm -hmm. The other thing that helped was that going to a writing class it was full of these wonderful people, mostly retirees, about 15 years older than I was, and this fantastic creative writing teacher. And it was a community. It was lovely to be able to go to this nice, tidy classroom and talk to these lovely people and hear their stories. And from there, a few of the more serious writers who had a writing group that met Friday mornings invited me to join. And so mm -hmm. I found community and friendship. And I'm still friends and walk with some of these folks today. They helped me get my book out there. When you're under the stress and the strain and the anger and the guilt and all of that swimming through most of your life, it's good to have a little Debbie time. And if that's the way you found it and it and then stayed with you for later on, I think that's a very good thing. And that's something that people can think about who are in a similar situation, that maybe they need some kind of creative outlet where they're away from all of that, where they can just be themselves for a while. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I think an outlet like that even if it's not necessarily creative is so important. You know, I also turned to yoga and hiking and sort of the best thing in part about these activities was finding communities of people to hike with. You know, when I was widowed mm -hmm. and really lonely, I would meet up with this lovely hiking group on a Saturday and Sunday mornings. And there were other people, a lot of them single because they were out there walking and, you know, relatively early and people were friendly and you were in nature. So I think in general, what really helps after something like this is to sort of figure out something that's your passion and then maybe figure out how to do it with some other people, especially in a group, because the, a group doesn't usually cancel. So you have something to mm -hmm. look forward to. And that's really mm -hmm. important. One of the things I've talked about recently with some other guests is the idea of closure. I've always had the opinion that somebody who's lost somebody close doesn't really want closure because we're afraid of leaving somebody behind. So what advice can you give to new widows or anybody who's lost a spouse or a close family member or even a close friend? What advice is there that we can talk about how to put things back together in a way that you're taking your loved one with you? And if not closure, then some sort of acceptance of the situation. I don't think of closure. I think of integration. Um, nice. I read a, you know, I'm, I'm a big Carl Jung fan. So I nice. think that we're integrating our losses. And sometimes that's into the same self that we were. And in mm -hmm. the case of widowed people, I think sometimes that's into a new self. Because like, for example, in my case, I'd been with George since I was 17. So I had to figure out kind of how to function as an I instead of a we. I like to go hiking as opposed to we like to watch this TV series or whatever. But I think what people don't realize in their despair is that it takes a really, really long time to feel like any version of yourself again. 
you know, mm. for me, and again, I going through George's denial, it took me about three years to have a brain again. I mean, a functioning brain. I was writing, but all the synapses weren't there. So it takes a really long time. And I think it's super important to be patient with yourself and then also gentle with yourself. Because part of the thing is I was, I'll use my verb, widowing, going through yeah. the loss, you know, kind of trying to make the house mine, walking, going out into the world a little bit, not too far from home, but also judging myself very harshly. I'm not doing enough. This isn't enough. I'm not fit enough. I'm I'm still too miserable. And I think it would be better if we kind of gave ourselves more leeway and more understanding that it's going to be a while until we're back to ourselves and that the self that we come back to or integrate might be very different than the self that we were before. You know, there's so many things in there I'd like to unpack. I'll take one or two. People have to find what's close to them. People have to find what they want to do. It isn't necessarily physical. Not everybody can hike. Not everybody can do yoga, but find something and find something that's in a group. I agree with that so totally. And I would use the word, I'm going to steal the word integration for you because I think that's the concept I've been looking for for all these years when people have told me what they do is they f- they find a way to package up their grief and take it with them. What they really do is they're integrating the grief into their lives, which is a nice way of saying it because it totally eliminates the feeling that I might be leaving somebody behind. And it totally exemplifies the idea that I'm bringing somebody with me wherever I go. And I think that's tremendous. I think it's a wonderful thing. Also, what I hear from you is that people should be good to themselves. They should be kinder to themselves. Don't beat yourself up. You're not going to bring somebody back by being upset or angry. Obviously, you're going to be upset. Obviously, you're going to be angry. But that's not the be all and end all of who you are. You've said that so succinctly and so nicely. And I thank you for that because that's what I've been looking for for myself to hear for a very long time. So thank you for that. And I hope everybody listening gets that because if you can't be good to yourself, you can't be good to anybody. I agree. I agree completely. People want us to get over our grief so quickly. You know, it's your, are you better? Are you over it? Even are you dating again? And, Uh you know, you're still young, you're still healthy, which doesn't negate the grief or the experience of the loss. No, not at all. (laughs) You know, I think that's a big deal too that leads us to be hard on ourselves because everybody's like, are you done with this? And it's like, well, it's not like I'm done with 32 years of my life. You know, I I think that these these expectations are ridiculous and I think that makes makes it even harder for grievers. If you've enjoyed listening to this program, please visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.org and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com. For information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much, much more. Welcome back to Bereave But Still Me. Debbie, let's talk about your book, Available As Is. Where did that come from and why did you write that book? I wrote Available As Is because part of the book was about dating, which was kind of a shock because when I started dating in 2014, uh, 14 months after losing George, I was 50 and I hadn't dated since uh, 19, oh, since 1980 when I was a junior in high school when I was 16. And that's very different. And I think us older singles are kind of like, 
we're available as is like older homes, right? We have our, our creeks and our um, cracks in the foundation, maybe. But <laughs> there's also, you know, some really Debbie, great Debbie, crown moldings. Derry, it's character. It's character. character. My real Old estate houses with have character. character. <laughs> yes. My real estate with character. So that's where I came up with the title for the book. Actually, my publisher helped with that, but uh, my original title was Widow Land, but apparently there's a dystopian novel out there with the same title that's doing pretty oh. well. <laughs> um, and I wrote the book to go through my experiences. I wanted other widowed folks in my situation, especially women, but could be men as well, who find themselves alone after a long relationship on their own in midlife when they never expected to be, to feel less alone. And I really saw the humor in it and the surrealism. And I didn't see other books that were kind of dealing with how flipping bizarre it is to come out of this great love and this wonderful established home life, which was also very settled into this kind of wild west craziness of being on your own and trying to date at midlife in, in the present day. That's a really important point. I want to hang on that just for a little bit, because when I said before about people not wanting closure, I think that's exactly the moment when you can decide if you're ready to date again. We had a guest a number of years ago, a very good friend of mine from when I was very, very young, and he was a widower. And he was just on the cusp of remarrying when we interviewed. And he said, I still love my wife very, very much, but that is a chapter in the story of my life that ended. I'm never going to lose that chapter. It's never going to mm -hmm. dissipate or go away, but now I'm in another chapter. And I think that's a, that's a decision point. That's a moment when people decide it's okay to date again. It's okay to go out in the world again. I'm not going to lose what I had. Can you talk to that for a second? I agree. I think that there's a time frame when you decide if you're ready to date, I probably went out there too soon because my new self sort of self and the strength I needed to deal with this barrage of, I'll just call it sensation, sometimes negative energy, wasn't really strong enough then. But I do believe there's a time when you make that decision. And I don't think it's leaving your prior life behind. I mean, Margaret Mead certainly talks about different chapters in, in, in life with different partners. I think that can apply to this culture and this time as well. And to people, I mean, you don't leave the love of your life behind just because you decide that you want to have another love in your life. In fact, I think one can inform the other. One thing I found so disheartening when I was dating is a lot of the gentlemen I met were divorced and they were pretty bitter about love and relationships. And I was really positive about love and relationships, maybe not so much the fates, but certainly the, the possibility of having a long loving relationship and as a widowed person, knowing that you've had that, why can't you have that again? And having that capacity and being able to share that with somebody else and have a beautiful life, why isn't that in part kind of honoring the lessons that you learned from your relationship as opposed to denigrating it? That makes perfect sense to me. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the way you exited a previous relationship. guy who exits a relationship in divorce has a lot more not only more baggage, but there's a lot of different baggage than you would have. You exited a relationship still in love 
and it's different. I mean, the love is still alive in you and the love is a little bit less burning in the other guy. And I think that's something that we need to think about. Let's talk about your blog for a second. You've recently rebranded it from The Hungover Widow into a new name. So tell us about the original name and the new name and why the change. And if that represents some sort of change in your own attitude. Well, I don't really blog anymore. I do newsletters, which deal with the issues I've talked about and other matters. And uh, I changed my website to be a Debbie Weiss author. Part of it is I'm not really a blogger, although, I, as I said, I do newsletters. And part of it, Debbie Weiss author, is because I have a book and I wanted people to be able to find me by by name. And um, I feel like more of an author than, you know, widow for me at one, for a few years. That was all for me. You know, if you say, well, who am I? I am a widow. That was really all I could talk about, even though I know sometimes people found that disturbing. Now I'm an author <laughs> and widow is something I've done. It's something I will always be, but it isn't my primary identity at this point. Um, right. You're not, you're not a professional widow anymore. And I think that's a good thing. You're right. Exactly. Exactly. This is almost 10 years ago. And so Debbie Weiss author also promotes the book and the other things that I'm doing with that. The hangover widow came up. Well, honestly, when George died, I was pretty upset. So I was uh, pretty big on Manhattans, mm. hence the hungover widow. And I also felt like widow seemed to have this sort of fake positivity to it. Widows are always sort of do-gooders or, or else there's kind of the stereotype of the merry widow who's happy right. to get back out there. And I kind of wanted the hungover widow to show kind of the distress and the messiness that comes with right. this kind of loss and feeling kind of messed up. So I wanted to put widow with something that wasn't that wasn't maybe so um, positive or appealing. It makes perfect sense to me now that you explain it that way. So tell us about what you've learned over the years in living with so much loss and what advice you might have for others living with losses. And let's talk about caregiver's guilt again and the desire to allow love into your lives again. Because I think people sort of hit this malaise where they just the whole world is this big amorphous mass. And how do you make order out of that chaos? Well, I'm a control freak. So oh, for me, that was limiting my world to being something small enough I could control. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, not going too far from home when George died, you know, at lawyer mode, paperwork done. Uh, mm -hmm. The house was, you know, obviously had a lot of deferred maintenance. I was doing a lot to kind of make it habitable and make it mine and make it a place that felt like a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And then from there, reaching out a bit slowly to other activities and other people and kind of seeing what resonated and what made me feel less lonely. You know, sometimes I had to learn that being in a group of people or doing something that ostensibly looks good if it was an Instagram photo or something, not that the Danville Rotary necessarily looked good as an Instagram photo, doesn't necessarily combat loneliness. You know, you have to feel seen. It has to be something that feeds you. And so it was a matter of kind of finding some things like that. In the moments we have left, I want to ask you about that transitional stage when you're getting into groups and you're doing things for yourself and being kind to yourself. All of that's great. But then you come home. What happens at that moment? Well, that was the hungover widow. I mean, at one point during the day, what came home was gardening and going to a yoga class or having a later dinner. But again, sometimes it was just the loneliness. It was bourbon. It was throwing my glass at the fireplace. It, it was not really being very happy at home. And then eventually there came a peace, a sense of being 
at you know feeling grateful that George was at peace and -hmm. grateful for the time we had together and kind of looking towards what's next but doing that all takes a tremendous amount of time just like the dating stuff you know the book starts with dating and it ends a few years later just a lot of different pieces I can imagine it's very difficult. And again, you run into that question of your friend saying, well, are you over this yet? That can't help. So I appreciate that you've given us the time to talk about this. And I appreciate that you've talked about the transition from the loneliness part into the more openness part, because I think that's really important. I think people need to know that it can be done. I think they can learn from your experience. So Debbie, thank you so much for joining us here on Bereave But Still Me. Thank you for being a part of the family. And thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Oh, thank you, Michael. Thank you for giving me a chance to to share with your with your audience. So that concludes this episode of Breathe But Still Me. I want to thank Debbie Weiss for sharing her book and her life experience. Please join us at the beginning of the month for a brand new podcast. I'll talk with you soon. But until then, please remember, moving forward is not moving away. Thank you for joining us. We hope you have felt supported in your grief journey. Bereaved But Still Me is a monthly podcast, and a new episode is released on the first Thursday of each month. You can hear our podcast anywhere you normally listen to podcasts at any time. Join us again next month for a brand new episode of Bereaved But Still Me.